you would please take your Bibles out and open them up to Romans chapter 15. This morning we continue our study of Romans 15, of course bringing 15 to a close, and then in essence getting to the end of the book. There are a few last minute things that we will go through Romans 16, but much of the instruction that Paul has been giving throughout this letter comes to an end in Romans 15, and the rest remains as, as mostly reminder and then greetings to specific people. And I, and I do like that <clears throat> the, both the New and the Old Testament has a list of names, but the New Testament specifically in terms of people that were specifically and by name and personally to be greeted and that simple reminder that sometimes it's easy to let these documents just kind of, kind of float away from reality and just think of them merely as writings that we have without remembering that someone actually wrote this, and he wrote this for people to read. And, and some of the people who were reading this and receiving this instruction were necessarily going to be put in harm's way because of it. Uh, they were going to take this truth, and they were instructed to then go out and proclaim it to the world, knowing that it meant hardship, it meant persecution, it meant suffering. It meant death in some cases. And so when we look at this, this list of names that will come in chapter 16, we think about Phoebe and, and, and Priscilla and Aquila and all the others that are listed here, Mary and Andronicus and Hunia and all these other people that just are lost to us. We don't know who they are. But they were not nameless to the Apostle Paul and certainly not nameless to the foundation of the church they were people just like you and me who had been captured by the truth and had a part to play. And so I, I like that these letters, while theologically rich and beautiful and give us so many wonderful things to consider, they come home in a way when we start reading about people who were called upon to respond to this just like we are. And so this morning we come to the end of chapter 15. Uh, we've been looking at Paul's plans to visit Rome, and, and the reason I stopped last week at verse 29 is I wanted this last little section in 15 to be its own thing. As Paul is talking about prayer, he's enlisting the prayers of the people and asking them to join him in prayer. This too becomes very personal. We look at the Apostle Paul, who was a man of authority, a man of learning, a man who was given special revelation who suffered for Jesus and yet who wrote much of the New Testament. He is not above at the end of this letter saying, hey, would you pray these two very specific things with me? Because he understood what prayer is, what prayer does, its, its power, and this, this obligation that we have as believers to join with one another in prayer. That we should be soliciting the prayers of each other. And we should be vulnerably soliciting the prayers of each other. Because that's what Scripture, that's how Christ calls us to live. So without further delay, let's turn our attention to the Word. This morning we're looking at Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 30. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant Word. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ 
and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So as the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing. Please join me in prayer for just a few moments. Father, Your Word is before us. I pray that You would use it to open up our minds and hearts to transform us into the image of Your Son, that You would capture us by the power and truth of Your Word, and that we would live for You, we would walk in Your light, and we would proclaim Your name. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. When we think about prayer, one of the consistent pictures throughout the Bible of prayer is one of striving, one of fighting, one that is, is, is an endeavor that is personally, can be personally costly. When we think of Old Testament, we can think of passages where Moses prays in the face of battle, like that, that his response to or his, his work in the, in the midst of battle is to pray. We remember that when Daniel was forbidden to pray to anyone but the king, what did he do? He goes and prays. He prays knowing that he stands in the face of persecution. Again, we would call that a striving. We think of David. Many of the prayers that David offered in battle are what they are. Some of the prayers David offered are in heartbreak, in brokenness to God. That is not an easy prayer. I don't care who you are. To come to the Lord heartbroken and devastated, but to come and to offer prayers, it is a striving. It is a battle. David did it. Moses did it. Daniel did it. Jesus, par excellence, the man of prayer, prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the darkest night of his soul where he was anxious and he was weak. He was begging his fellow companions, his apostles, to come through tears and agony. Come, watch and pray with me. Because he understood the nature of this prayer is going to be one of striving, one of battle, a fight. So the Bible captures exactly what prayer is supposed to be. It's so easy. It's so easy for us to make a quip or a quick little prayer without thinking of it is warfare. It's a battle. It's something that we use to fight against our flesh, against the world, against the enemy. So when we are when we are looking at prayer, we think of the men that we've mentioned and others that we could also mention. There's prayer and distress. And these prayers in distress become a battle in and of themselves, right? Those things also become battles. And in, in prayer, we are, we are praying and we are battling with our own flesh, our own fear, our own skepticism, our own natural inclination to wonder if this is getting through the ceiling. When we pray, we are battling with the forces around us attacking the goodness of God. Oh, yes, you'll hear it. You prayed for this thing and it didn't happen or it didn't happen like you thought it should. And so when we come to the Lord in prayer, we are having to do battle with our flesh and then 
the spiritual forces at work against us and against the kingdom of light who would convince us that prayer is a wasted notion. Why bother praying? God is not going to answer you anyway. So yes, prayer is fighting. It's fighting through our biggest obstacle, which is ourself. And so when we think of prayer, I mean, you know, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. That's a sweet prayer. I'm not knocking that prayer. But I want us to understand that prayer becomes a very, a very big endeavor when we realize that when we pray, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. It's, it's, it's a cute prayer, but it's a, it's a bold request. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. But you're asking God, keep me. And that, beloved, we don't do that naturally. That's not something that just comes natural to you or to me. We can say that very naturally, but we don't mean it naturally. It's something a fight has to occur. Right? A battle in our own heart has to take place for us to sincerely pray that and mean it. Now, we might think that the battle happens once and Jesus wins us at the cross and then, but I would argue that actually it's a battle that has to take place constantly. A constant remembrance of truth. Paul often writes about prayer in his letters. He often asks for specific prayers like he does here. Or he might tell the church, this is how I'm praying for you. Presently, what he invites these Roman Christians to do is literally fight alongside of me in prayer. What he literally says, fight alongside of me in prayer. I'm asking you to fight with me. He sees prayer correctly as a weapon against the flesh and the world and a way to commune with God. So he's asking them to come along with him on this journey, this battle, this warfare, this thing he's, he's going to be praying for, which on the outset seems very straightforward enough. Hey, pray that I'll be protected from the unbelievers in Judea, and pray that this gift that I'm bringing to Jerusalem will be accepted. Those might appear very common, easy, mundane prayers, but Paul labels it as fight alongside with me. This is a battle because we're having to wade through unbelief. I'm telling you, I am telling you, I'm telling you, the biggest weapon that we face in the world is unbelief. It is unbelief. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not minimizing spiritual powers here. What I'm telling you is, is the primary motive of spiritual powers arrayed against God is to create unbelief. How do we know that? Because the first thing out of Satan's mouth was, did God really say? That tells you right there, what is he trying to do? He's trying to create some unbelief in Eve. That's exactly what he wants to do. That's exactly what the world wants to do. That's exactly what your flesh and my flesh want to do. They want to indulge in unbelief because it feels much more rational, right? Much more rational and logical to simply say, I don't believe this or that because I can't see it or you can't prove it in X, Y, and Z. So prayer becomes a battle for our souls, beloved. It does. To really believe, to truly and earnestly believe that God is and He is able for you, for me, and for the people that we're praying for. When we look at prayer, it is an act of love. It is an act of love for the people for whom we pray. It's an act of love and worship 
toward God. I trust that you, in fact, Yahweh, are able to do what I'm asking. Now, here's the thing, and we have to be real clear on this. The question is never, is God able to do it? Hopefully, you've read the Bible enough to be convinced He is. If the Bible is true, then God is able. The question then becomes, is is He going to answer the way that I want Him to? And beloved, if God is as big as the Bible says He is, and He is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or think, then we have to make space in our worldview for a God to answer prayer that might not be the way we want it answered. We're going to see that today, so I'm not going to leave you hanging on that one. That's exactly. God answers Paul's request, and we're going to see how he answers it. And it's not how we might expect or even how Paul might have wanted, but he does exactly what Paul prays for. When we approach God in prayer, as I said a moment ago, we have to pray believing that God is and that he is able. So that he is and that he is able. And when we think about what gives power to prayer, some people think it's faith. The prosperity preachers really want you to believe that. God answers insofar as you have faith. The power for you to be healed or be rich or be happy is all in how much faith you have. No, that is a lie from hell. The power of prayer is solely in God. God is the empowering part of prayer. God answers prayer according to His will, for His glory, for our good, not because we do or don't have faith. Is faith important? You bet it is. The effectual, faithful prayers of a righteous man accomplishes much. That's exactly what James says. But I want us to keep the locus of power where it belongs, in God and not in our ability to believe. Do do we need amen? Do we need do we need faith in prayer? Yes. Is God the sole proprietor and the power for prayer? Yes. So believe and pray believing, but understand that the power to accomplish is solely in God. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see and it's this, that prayer is a battle in the power of the Trinity. That prayer is a battle in the power of the Trinity. If you, if you pay attention to those four verses, you find very clear um, references to the Trinity, to the entire Godhead. Paul talks about the entire Godhead here in, this, in these short verses. And if prayer isn't rooted in the power and love of God, it's useless. Prayer has to be with God as the object. God is the sole object of prayer, that the sole ability of prayer or, or the sole accomplishment through prayer is God's power, then we need to let it stand that prayer, if it isn't rooted in the power and love of God, it's useless. In other words, we're not praying for a coincidence. We're not praying for a happenstance. We are praying for God to do something that only God can do. And however He might do it, we accept the results. That is the hard part. That becomes the most difficult part, in fact. Paul starts, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, or literally through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit to fight together or strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Paul is asking, he's, he's, he's giving us a clear indication of what prayer is. Prayer is petition. 
We are petitioning God's help. We're asking God to do something that we cannot accomplish on our own. So it is a petition to the Lord to do a specific thing or specific things. But it's also the forgotten other side of prayer is we pray to come in line with God. We pray to understand who God is and to come in line with His will and His truth which we find in the pages of Scripture. When he says, I appeal to you, or I urge you, he's pleading with God's people. He's urging God's people. These brothers, this real sign of affection, the very, the least, the, the very common, the most least thing he's saying is, stand with me. Be unified with me. I'm going to tell you some things that I'm praying, and I want you to be praying those things with me. I want us to pray together. They are separated by distance. But he says, I want you to do this thing with me and let's have this unity. But before that, he gives two prepositional phrases that are actually really important. His appeal comes to the brothers through or by our Lord Jesus Christ and through or by the love of the Spirit. So he talks about the Lordship of Christ and the love of Spirit. Now, I'm gonna, what I'm going to say here is the appeal is rooted in this. We can also argue that prayer is rooted in the Lordship of Christ and the love of the Spirit. Because when we start talking about us ourselves as Christians, lordship is everything. The lordship of Christ is everything. Christ is Lord. He is Lord of all creation. He is Lord of all souls. He is Lord over prayer. He is Lord over the church. He is Lord. And we live our lives under His lordship. We don't disconnect anything from the lordship of Christ. So, that was fashionable some decades ago to talk about Christians who are faithful and carnal Christians. Some Christians have experienced salvation but have denied the lordship of Christ. Beloved, it's hogwash. There's no such. I mean, to, to deny the lordship of Christ is to reject salvation. To be saved under the love and lordship of Christ is to acknowledge his lordship. And that's it. There is no other category than that. And so Paul roots his, his plea, his prayer, I'm appealing to you, I'm urging you, I'm asking you, I'm really encouraging you to pray with me because Jesus is Lord. So stand with me under the Lordship of Christ. But he also says, through the love of the Spirit. You see, when we see things through the Lordship of Christ, beloved, it, it's like... It's like me looking at you now and then putting on these glasses. Your faces come into focus. We see things through the Lordship of Christ as they are. Of course, I have to take them off to see my paper. We see self. We see God. We see everything with clarity through the lens of the Lordship of Christ. It changes how we do everything. It changes how we pray. It changes how we relate. It changes how we work. It changes how we do anything. Because here's the thing. When lordship is absent, when the lordship of Christ is absent, who becomes the measure of all things? I do. You do. We do. Right? I am. I am the measure of all things. When the lordship of Christ is absent. And prayer by virtue is getting us to sacrifice that human fleshly pride on the altar of grace and kill it 
Lordship compels us to come and die with Jesus. But I love that Paul also talks about the authoritative aspect, the Lordship of Christ, but through the love of the Spirit. He says, so he's appealing to the love of the Spirit because he understands that prayer is motivated by love through the Holy Spirit. Why do we pray? Well, A, because we love God. God commands us to offer prayers because we love one another. You know, how many of us, when someone asks us to pray, now sometimes if we're honest, we say, yeah, I actually forgot to pray. But we sincerely want to pray with brothers and sisters. At least the desire is there to pray with people. We want to stand with them. That is not a natural thing. That comes by the love of the Spirit. And so we're motivated by love through the Holy Spirit to pray. And this is a love for God and love for His people. Paul says this. He says, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So Paul rightly, as we've already pointed out, recognizes what is prayer? It's striving. It's a fight. It's we're engaged in something. It's something that is, it defies our own natural ability to remain engaged in. So we we, we battle with the world. We battle with our flesh. I've already listed out some of those battles. We battle with the, the enemy of our soul. And when we look from, from Genesis to Revelation, this bears out. We understand that prayer is a battle. When we're praying both physically and spiritually for the dead to be raised, when we're praying for someone that we know and love to be saved, we are praying for the dead to be raised. We are praying that that dead soul be quickened by Christ. So whether we're praying for the, the dead to be raised, whether we're praying, praying for the, the lost to be found, whether we are, are praying for God to come and establish righteousness, we are striving in prayer. And just as an aside, in the Lord's Prayer, when we ask God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're asking God to bring his judgment against all that is evil. We are asking God to destroy what is evil in the world and establish His righteousness. Beloved of God, that by definition is entering into a spiritual battle. Because if we do it, and we take that call seriously, then we need to understand we are in the fight of our time. The fight of our time is not in Europe. The fight in our time it's not in the Middle East. Are there battles in those places? Yes. Things we should be praying about and concerned about. The fight of our time is the fight of every time. And it's the fight against the world system arrayed against the kingdom of God that would devour us were it not for the mercy of Christ. And so we stand in prayer and we fight by praying Verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Two petitions there. What I love about this is what Paul is doing is putting himself in God's hands. I have no control, he's saying, over either of these two things. Isn't that lovely? How do we deal with our own anxieties? We first deal with it by ceding control or, or actually acknowledging we don't have control over these things. Paul had no control over what the unbelievers in Judea were going to do. None. Paul had no control as to whether the Jerusalem saints were going to receive his service as a good gift. So he's asking, God, I'm putting myself now in your hands. 
please answer. And God does answer Paul, and it is very unexpected how God does it. You remember, Paul's already told the Roman church, I want to come to you. I want to visit you on my way to Spain. Now, if you've read the book of Acts recently, or you just remember reading Acts, you know exactly how Paul comes to Rome. He comes to Rome as a prisoner. He comes to Rome in chains as a prisoner. He said, God, I want you to protect me from the unbelievers in Judea, and I want the Jerusalem saints to receive the gift. God does protect him from the unbelievers in Judea by shacking him to a Roman soldier and sending him to Rome. And so there Paul goes to Rome and makes a defense for the gospel in places where he would never have been. But I think it's beautiful. It's hard. I, I wouldn't want to go to Rome as a prisoner. I would much rather go free and enjoying the, the city of Rome and enjoying the believers there and not be shackled to some Roman soldier that I didn't know and that created all the awkwardness that that would create for somebody. And yet we have to take it at face value that Paul entrusted himself to God. And in Acts 22 through 28, we get his experience in Rome. In Acts 24 specifically, we are told that the Jerusalem saints did in fact receive his gift and accept it. And so in the one sense, you have God being faithful to answer prayers. In another sense, you have Paul being faithful to entrust himself to the Lord and do what he felt compelled to do by God. Is it how I would have wanted to be answered? Probably not. But it's how God answered. An answer he did in a way that became rich and beautiful for the gospel. Because, beloved, when we entrust ourselves to God in prayer and we begin to remove self from the equation, we have to be ready for things like this to transpire in ways in which we might not have thought about or hoped for. That doesn't bring me tons of comfort in this moment. I'll be honest with you. But the beauty of it is, is that God is faithful to do what He has promised to do, even in ways in which we might not have chosen. I have, honest, I have told you this before, and I'm going to say it again. A Grace Disguised is one of the most profound, gut-wrenching, beautiful books I've ever read in my life about grief and heartache and a man who lost half his family in one fail swoop. One fail swoop. He lost his wife, he lost his mother, and he lost one of his children due to a, a drunk driver. Some years after that, he had the presence of mind to say, today I'm a better husband, I'm a better son, and I'm a better father. And none of that could have happened had God not brought me through the valley through which he brought me and brought me clean on the other side. None of us prays for that type of tragedy. None of us. None of us wants that. And yet, sometimes God answers our prayers in ways which are cost us dearly for the beauty of seeing Christ transformed in us or us transformed into the image of Christ. And so I don't say this lightly. I don't want that type of loss to learn. And yet God will answer prayers in ways in which it's costly that we might grow and He might get glory. I love what Paul does here. The Jerusalem saints do take the gift. We are told in Acts that God answers His prayers. 
so that by God's will, in verse 32, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Now, I want you to appreciate so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. I want you to notice what Paul doesn't focus on. Paul doesn't say we'll rejoice if the circumstances are good, if it's easy, if we have all this opportunity to celebrate and party. He says, I will rejoice that I, or so that by God's will I may come to you with joy. Why? Because it's by God's will. So that by God's will. So don't disconnect that little phrase, that little prepositional phrase, by God's will from the other little phrase, with joy. Those two things go together. They work together. And so that Paul's joy is not in the circumstance of his coming. It's in the reality that he's in God's will. Oh, beloved, we, we need to learn that lesson. Brad needs to learn that lesson, that it's the beauty of being in God's will, not the circumstances in which we find ourselves. I pray you all have great circumstances. I don't wish for anybody in this room to suffer. And yet, there is joy to be had in seasons of lament if we are walking in the will of the Lord and entrusting ourselves to Him. But I love this, and be refreshed in your company. What is Paul's expectation of his fellowship with the church? That he's going to be refreshed. He just speaks it out. That I will come by the will of the God with joy and be refreshed in your company. So let's not, that's another prepositional phrase. Let's not separate the will of God with joy in your company. Don't you love this? He doesn't come thinking that the, the Roman church is going to be a real serious drag to him. Like, he's not thinking when I get there, I'm going to have so much work to do. I'm going to have to teach these people. And I'm going to have to build, make tents. And I'm going to have to. He comes with the expectation that this body of believers is going to refresh him. And I wonder if we come to God's people, to our community, with the same expectation that we will be refreshing. I wonder if we come to this community or communion of saints with the hope that we will be refreshing to somebody else. Because it's real easy to come and hope that we'll be refreshed without hoping that we also want to be a refreshment to somebody else. Let us pray that we would be those people that when they come, they say, man, they were weird, but I was refreshed. <laughs> I will take being called weird if we're a refreshment to the saints. Or that, hey, you know, whatever else we, we might say, we were refreshed by our time with them. That's what we need to aim for. That's our goal. That's our desire. It should be anyway. So that we understand that God's will isn't always easy, but it is a source of joy. And when we are walking in it, we have opportunities to both be refreshed and be a refreshment to other people. I love how he ends it here. He says, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. One of the most simple, one of the simplest benedictions there is. Pronouncement of blessing. May the God of peace be with you all. And its simplicity is very beautiful. What is... Because the answer to how does one experience peace is within the blessing itself. May the God of peace 
be with you all. Beloved, do we understand here that Paul is making a, a pronouncement of presence? How do we experience peace best? Well, the best experience of peace for Christians is to be living in, walking in, as we sang earlier, being anchored in the presence of God. When we talk, we live in a world who deals with all sorts of psychological, physical, emotional maladies. All kinds of things that we deal with. We read about in the news. We hear about in the news. And so when we start thinking, what is, what is peace? Well, in the Old Testament, it was shalom. In the New Testament, it's irene. And in fact, the English name Irene comes from the Greek word irene, meaning peace. Irenic. You know, people will say that. Irene is peace. And, th- and this type of peace doesn't mean that there's never a fight. It doesn't mean that there's never a struggle. Obviously, we struggle in prayer. This type of peace is, from a biblical standpoint, it's a sense of wholeness in the face of brokenness. It's a sense of serenity in the face of of turmoil. It's a sense of hope in the face of despair. And where where do we find that? How is that experienced? How How do we tap into that in a practical way? I love by living quorum Deo, before the face of God, by acknowledging that we live with Emmanuel, Christ with us, God with us, and that our goal is to walk and live in the presence so that we have peace, a peace that was dearly bought by the blood of Christ, a peace that is experienced through the communion of the saints and through private prayer and worship. A peace that is ours ad infinitum if we live under the banner of Christ. And a peace that we should constantly be praying for. I try to purpose, if anybody ever asks me to pray for them, I try to purpose to pray peace. That they may know peace. Because why do you do what you do? Because you want peace. Why does the drunkard go to the bottle, the drug addict to a needle, the man or woman go to the house of ill repute? Or why do we do most anything that we do? Because in some way, we think it might give us a moment of peace. G.K. Chesterton, I've said this before, says, Even the man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. And so it is, and so we are, and so it's true. Paul says, may the peace of God be with you all. How? Through God's presence. We need God's presence. And that presence liberates us to have purpose and to have value. And so when we think about prayer... Prayer is entering into God's presence with every burden that we have. All of who we are. Not setting them aside to come in prayer. I've often said, and I say again, that prayer is not a vending machine experience. You don't go B5 and get your thing and move on. We would like for it to be that. It would be simpler. It would be easier to say in B5, I need my cousin's healing, so B5. In C7, I need the salvation of my co-worker, so C7. And it would be cool if those things just fell right off the shelf, and you're like, hey, here's your healing, cuz, co-worker. 
Here's your salvation. Um, that would be wonderfully easy and simple, and it would require very little faith on, from us, and it would require very little death in us. You see, prayer is an invitation to come into the presence of God. And God wants us to bring all those cares, all those anxieties, all those fears, and all those praises with us when we come before Him. And He says, cast them all at me. Cast them all on me. And He will show Himself faithful in ways often unlooked for. When we come in prayer, we have to be prepared to be transformed ourselves. We have to be prepared to go a little further. God says, you've come this far. Now, come a little further. Come a little further. Walk with me a little further and a little longer. And let me show you some things actually about yourself that need to change. And then let's continue praying. And yes, come, come, walk a little longer, a little further, and keep coming into my presence. And He's drawing us into a place where there's nothing but trust and hope in Him. Beloved, it's a scary place to be because when we're taken out of control, we don't like that. And yet God is calling us to that very place to be prepared to receive the answer that God gives us for our good and for His glory that might not be the answer we wanted. So we come in prayer to wage war against our flesh and against the world. And in so doing, God transforms us into the image of Christ. And so the person that we entered into as prayer warriors is not the person that we exit. We exit something more rich, something more beautiful, something more Christ-like. Please pray with me. Father, let this be true. Let this all be true and let us hope in you and in the goodness of your word and the power of your own character and in the faithfulness of the pages of Scripture where you have shown yourself to be true and everything else to be less than. Father, help us to be a praying people, a people who entrust ourselves fully to you, a people who acknowledge that you are the giver of life, the sustainer of hope, and the wondrous giver of love. Help us to believe it. Help us to pray like it's true. And help us to walk by faith in our prayers. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.